and you know that trucks are going to arrive in a semi-predictable order. Hopefully you're scheduling them, but there's contingencies, you know, trucks don't show up or containers go missing or whatever. How do you make sure that these containers are stacked so that the right container is on top of the stack at the moment that the correct truck arrives? So a crane can go over and just pick up that container, lift it up, and then gingerly place it on the uh, trailer of that truck. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. If you're like me, the past two years have been filled with two main things. COVID, and supply chain disruptions. Why were Christmas presents late? Supply chain disruptions. Why can't you buy fancy cheese? Supply chain disruptions. Why am I single? Supply chain disruptions. What does the supply chain even mean? Of course, it's how things are made, like chips made in one place that need to be put in cars in another country. But it's also how exactly products get from where they are made, often in Asia, to our doorsteps. We've gotten so used to clicking a button and having a box arrive two days later that often we don't really think about what's in between. There's a truck, okay? Probably a boat. Maybe a plane. There's a plane, right? Honestly, most of us probably don't know how an item we order that's made overseas gets to the U.S. and then to our front doors. Luckily for us, Christopher Mims does. And there are no planes. Christopher is a technology columnist at the Wall Street Journal and the author of Arriving Today, Why Everything Has Changed About How and What We Buy. Christopher, welcome. Bethany, thank you so much for having me. First, I think we need to acknowledge the amazing timing on this book. Um, You were actually reporting this book in the early days of the pandemic, And I assume you did not know at the time that supply chain would be a phrase on everyone's lips. I was wondering what got you interested in writing about the supply chain in the first place. Well, as often is the case with um, projects, you know, we come into them by accident and kind of sideways. And for me, it was robots. So I actually, you know, I saw this uh, almost fully automated project. so-called fulfillment center uh, owned by Ocado in the suburbs of uh, London, UK. And I just, I was absolutely mesmerized by these videos. I saw of it. I, I just thought, God, this is like a totally new way to use robots, a totally different kind of sophistication than we have seen in robotics, production robotics than in the past. You know, I want to know more. And as I started to dig in, it just hit me that there is this global supply chain. It is how everything that we buy and consume gets to us. And we just, we know so little about it. You know, even for me, somebody who likes to read books like um, Rose George's really excellent uh, 90% of everything, which is about ocean going shipping. um, You know, even after finishing that book, I still felt like, well, I kind of know about one leg of this journey, but what about the rest of it? And how is it changing? Because it seemed like it was changing really fast. So, you know, it's just one of those things where the further in you go, the bigger it gets. And I, and I got really transfixed and it turned into this book. And I mentioned at the beginning that we're so used now to ordering things and just having them kind of magically appear. I was thinking the other day, there really is kind of magic to the fact that you can like click a button and the next day there's brie cheese just like right there. (laughs) Yeah. Brie, brie cheese or, or things of, of just surpassing complexity, like consumer electronics. I mean, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Click button for Brie. That's amazing. Um, 
And I was wondering, why is it important for people to know how it happens? Why does it matter for people to know what kind of route their stuff took? So, um, you know, sorry to invoke Marx this early in the conversation, but, you know, he talked a lot about how, you know, this concept of alienation, you know, when people are um, removed, you know, when we do a job in an industrial economy and, and we're removed from the fruits of our labor by the intercession of money, we have this sort of feeling of alienation. And I just think that characterizes how our whole economy works. Like we, like you said, you push a button and Brie arrives, but how? everything involved in that process is a mystery deliberately, right? Like Amazon and everybody else wants to obscure that uh, pathway from us. And, you know, personally, I think ideologically that just kind of offends me, but I just think as like citizens of the world, not knowing how that gets to us um, makes us vulnerable in some ways, right? Cause we don't know the environmental impact of that. We don't know the, um, the impact on the workers who are involved and we don't know uh, how those systems are changing, which I, I think just has huge impacts for how tons of us spend our days. And also, um, you know, if we want to be conscious consumers, how we should be doing that. We, you know, we it's all a mystery, right? And in the old days, you milked a goat, you made some cheese, you knew where it was all coming from. Now we just don't. And I have to say, in reading this book, I ended up very struck by how many parts there are <laughs> in this system. It's a huge system of so many moving parts, depending on so much technology. Like It just made me sit there and be like, wow, if GPS disappears for like five minutes, a bunch of boats in the Pacific are going to have some major issues. <laughs> Yeah, and true. I just I'd never thought of it before. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's this uh, it's this system that keeps becoming more complicated, right? Like that's a major theme of the book. Um, and as we have seen, you know, in the past couple of years, the the degree to which it's vulnerable to disruption is is directly proportional to how complicated it is. Like any system, right? If you if you make it really complicated, there's just more things that can break. And I, I like the structure of the book um, because, of course, you decide to follow an item around the world, um, literally, starting in Vietnam, where an item that someone might order on Amazon gets loaded onto a shipping container. And I have to say that, weirdly, the shipping container segment is my favorite part of this book, um, <laughs> which I don't know why, but it is. <laughs> and you note that 90% of goods in the world travel by ship which seems at first kind of absurd. But when you pause to think about it, makes total sense. And many people probably don't think about shipping containers unless they think about people converting them into adorable tiny houses um, or something like that. Or, you know, they drive around one on the highway. And I was wondering if you could talk about where these shipping containers came from, because there was a time when there were no shipping containers. Yeah, shipping containers. Um, I mean, we've always had, we've long had some type of containerized shipping. People have always tried to be like, well, what if we just, instead of all these loose goods that we're just throwing into the belly of a ship, what if we put them in some boxes? Like that could help. Um, but this this idea to to create a you know a, a big steel standardized thing 
that could go as easily on a ship as it does on, you know, the um, trailer of a truck or, uh, you know, a rail car. That really was born with Malcolm McLean, this kind of eccentric um, guy who owned a trucking company in the United States in the 1950s. And he, he saw clearly what this could accomplish. Um, but it was very difficult for him to convince other people to get on board because, you know, it, it's a new standard. And with any new standard, you have to get a lot of people to agree, right? Because everything has to be built to the same specification or the system doesn't work. Um, and what jump started it was that the United States military was having a terrible problem getting enough uh, material into Vietnam for the Vietnam war. I mean, more, more bombs were dropped in Vietnam than in all of world war two. Uh, it was a terrible human cost and at, at the expense of an unbelievable amount of just tons and tons of uh, gear and material was needed for every platoon of troops in Vietnam. And literally ships were backed up, you know, the way they are today at the port of LA long beach. And, uh, you know, somebody in the DOD said, hey, this guy, Malcolm McLean, has this idea that we can stuff all this stuff in standardized shipping containers, and that will make moving it on shore much more efficient. So that was the kind of genesis moment where he got enough money to build or to actually to modify ships that could carry these shipping containers. And from there, it kind of took off because pretty soon these ships, which started out, they had to carry their own cranes because there weren't shipping container accommodating cranes on shore were replaced by the right cranes on shore. And everybody who did this at a port saw this very rapid increase in the efficiency, just the amount of material they could move through that port versus what they were doing before, which was literally just tons of longshoremen. And it was almost always men, uh, you know, going into the hold of a ship and carrying out sacks and barrels or, you know, using small cranes to lift out wooden pallets of goods. That was just very inefficient. So it used to take weeks to unload a ship. And there was a lot of loss along the way. Stuff would get stolen or damaged. Uh, and it went from that to, you know, it just took days to unload a ship full of shipping containers. So it spread very quickly and really led to, uh, you know, modern globalization. It's really fascinating to realize kind of how the shipping container changed everything because so often we're kind of working in systems that are legacy systems of decisions that were made a really long time ago. And probably like the most famous of these examples is the ACDC current <laughs> um, that we made a, you know, uh, we made a decision back in like the very early 20th century regarding AC current. <laughs> and here we are. And if we were to try and change to something more efficient, you know, it just requires a complete change of everything we do. Um, and it's amazing how difficult that is to do. And the shipping container really did change everything midstream or like midship. <laughs> yeah, but it did take time. I mean, it, it took decades. And, uh, you know, Mark Levin's book, The Box, really ably chronicles the way that it was a long, difficult, messy process, in part because so many longshoremen ultimately lost their jobs because it was just so much more efficient. Uh, and uh, so there were tons and tons of labor disputes along the way, among other things. And I also wanted to 
talk about the shipping container itself because they're pretty long. They're about like 40 feet long, but they're not very tall. They're like eight feet tall. Um, And their walls are extremely thin. And I was wondering, how is the shipping container kind of designed to put up with the immense weights that they carry and the immense pressures that they withstand? Because, of course, you mentioned in the book that on ships, during a storm, these shipping containers are going to like tilt slightly. And it's it seems like a small tilt, but when you're that large, the G-forces are intense. Um, and so I was wondering, how are these shipping containers kind of designed to put up with that sort of thing? So they, I mean, you know, it's it's the miracle of, of tube steel frames, the same thing that keeps us safe inside of our cars. Uh, and so there is this rectangular frame on which this very thin skin it's it's only the thickness of like three credit cards is the outside of a is the skin of a shipping container it's corrugated of course and as we all know from cardboard boxes that adds a lot of strength but if you stand on the roof of a shipping container and you're not standing on one of the it's like a stud you know in a house one of the struts uh you know it'll bend under your feet it's very very thin but that tube steel frame is so strong that, you know, a shipping container can can have, you know, almost a dozen containers on top of it. It can be sitting at the bottom of a stack. They can't all be loaded to their maximum weight, but it can hold all of those containers up and it can deal with the G-forces, which could be, you know, two, three Gs as a ship pitches and rolls uh, without collapsing. And these shipping containers end up on these massive container ships which are limited only in size by whether or not they could get stuck in the Suez Canal. Um, and I, you'd think that this would involve hundreds of sailors on each ship. And it doesn't. And I was really fascinated by how these ships travel such huge distances with only a few dozen people. How has that kind of become the case that ships have gone from like ships full of dudes to massive, massive ships with very few still mostly dudes. Ships are remarkably automated. They're really like giant robots already. Um, When you walk onto the bridge of a ship, if you want to steer that ship, you know, in the old days, you imagine this huge wheel that would turn the rudder on a sailing ship. You know, the wheel on, on one of these ships looks like a little toy wheel it's smaller than the wheel of a car where you're going to make subtle adjustments to the heading of the ship most of the time it's they're actually steering it with an even tinier thing it's like the volume knob on a stereo and they just twist it a little bit to change the heading of the ship and all of that you know through electronic linkages to hydraulic systems is controlling you know the rudder of the ship and uh its propellers and ships have been in the process of becoming more automated forever. I mean, long before we had this idea that there was going to be a, uh, some such a thing as an autonomous car. We had autonomous ships. I mean, the Titanic had a thing on it called the iron Mike. And it was just this little, very early device that could detect uh, that could keep the ship on a true heading, you know, by through a mechanical electrical linkage between a compass and, you know, something that, that adjusted the steering of the ship. So 
what humans are for on a ship in part is to maintain that ship while it's in motion so that the ship never really has to stop and come into port. So, you know, pieces of the ship rust, that rust has to be scraped off. They have to be repainted. So you need able-bodied seamen on board to just constantly, literally that's their whole job all, all day, every day. They're just walking around the ship, scraping off paint and repainting, Um, you know, and you need a handful of officers to decide where the ship is going and handle paperwork. It's a lot of, it's like an office job, but you know, other than that and the engineers who are making the ship's engine run, uh, you know, it's, it's almost entirely automated. Though I have to say the comparison to the Titanic, Titanic staying on a true heading is probably not the greatest. Like <laughs> the Titanic's right. not the boat you want to invoke here. <laughs> right. Um, and then of course, these giant ships do sometimes get stuck in the Suez Canal. <laughs> and I know that this sounds like it took place, uh, you know, maybe a century ago, or maybe it was last week, but I wanted to take a moment to obsess about the Ever Given getting stuck in the Suez Canal. <laughs> yeah. How did that, how did that happen? And kind of what does it say about how these massive container ships run? These ships are so big that when they come into a port or, or a cataract like the Suez Canal, uh, a special pilot called a harbor pilot has to jump on the ship. So when that thing got stuck, the ship's normal captain was 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 not in charge. You know, they had picked up, uh, you know, and uh, somebody who's based in Egypt, who's a harbor pilot specifically for the Suez Canal to help them navigate through it. So it's on that person. I mean, they they made the mistake. Uh, you know, when that goes well, you have a really experienced harbor pilot who knows every, you know, feature, who knows exactly where the ship channel is, who knows the tides, the currents, you know, the the weather that day. And they can very skillfully navigate these enormous ships uh, on paths where, the you know, the tolerance could be just meters or sometimes, no joke, a meter. <laughs> is is so it's a ship that's as big as the empire state building laying on its side and this person has to navigate it through a pathway where you know a meter too far to one side or the other spells disaster so that's how skilled and how experienced those harbor pilots are and this was just a a fail <laughs> this was a fail it was a windy day yeah. and somebody really misjudged the size and the momentum of that ship which is easy to do and it, the wind just pushed it off course a little bit. And, you know, it's the old adage, you know, it's, it's hard to steer a ship. <laughs> it starts to go in the wrong direction. And before you know it, you're, uh, you're stuck in the side of the Suez Canal. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about these harbor pilots, because this is a fascinating dance of protocol. <laughs> and it also has torn down every cool sailing movie ever in my brain. Because in all the cool sailing movies, you know, the the captain says, bring her into port or whatever, and everybody hauls on ropes, and everything just just kind of happens, and the captain's in charge of his ship until he hops grandly down the gangplank, right? And that's literally never been the case in the entire history of shipping. And yeah, I was wondering I mean, if you could talk about harbor pilots and what this dance of protocol is, because this is amazing. So a harbor pilot, so to give you an example of just modern, competent harbor piloting in contrast to what happened in the Ever Given, 
you know, when when a ship comes into the the joint port of LA and Long Beach, which are owned by Long Beach and LA respectively, but it's basically the same port. They're li- they're literally the only thing separating them is a fence. It's the biggest port in the United States by volume and by other measures. And when a ship gets close, you know, a mile or two out, uh, a, a harbor pilot who actually works for, if you take the port of LA, works for the city of LA, hops on this fast boat. It's almost like a PT boat from the Navy or something. And it, and it jets across the waves, you know, at three, four o'clock in the morning because they're often moving the ships in early in the morning. And this harbor pilot, uh, you know, is carried by another uh, pilot to the giant container ship. And, I, you know, I, I rode along with one of these harbor pilots. You know, you get up to this huge container ship and you're like, God, this thing is as big as a skyscraper because it literally is. And they throw on the searchlight and it's like you're coming up on like a derelict wreck in like one of the alien movies or something because the name of it gets illuminated and there's just a few lights on the ship itself and you come around to one side in the lee of the waves because you want to be on the calmer side of the ship and you the harbor pilot boat has to pull alongside the giant container ship and somehow you have to transfer this one human being the harbor pilot from the boat to the ship but the two vessels are moving up and down often with a different period you know like one's going up while the other's going down etc and to get onto the ship to this day, the way that harbor pilots get on these giant ships is on a, a rope ladder, an honest to goodness rope ladder. I mean, it's not made of like jute or something, but it is, a, it is a flexible rope ladder that they throw down from a portal and they have to get on the very prow of the harbor pilot boat and then sort of half step, half leap onto the uh, rope ladder at exactly the right moment. They time it. They watch it going up and down and the bottom rungs of it getting dunked in the water. And then they have to scramble up the ladder. And, you know, if they mistime it and they get on the ladder when that ship is, when the swell is coming up, let's say, and they get dunked in the water, they're almost certainly going to get torn off the ladder. And then their survival rate is close to zero. It's hugely dangerous. And the entire career of a harbor pilot they have a one in 20 chance of dying on the job. And, uh, and this is somebody who's, who's highly trained and super aware of the dangers. Um, and then once they scramble up this ladder, they, they, you know, get taken to the bridge and then they have total control of the ship. The captain relinquishes control and, you know, the Harbor pilot is suddenly in a position where, uh, they have to pilot a ship that uh, they've never, they may have never piloted before, probably have never piloted before. And every ship has its quirks and, you know, some are more responsive than others. So the captain immediately hands them this kind of data sheet and will be like, yeah, you know, she pulls a little to the left. So watch out. And they have to immediately internalize all of that and then, and set up their own navigation system because they don't trust the ships. Uh, And they set up their own positioning system as well, which is ultra precise. And then solely through verbal commands, they're directing the officers on the bridge, you know, full ahead, you know, left this many degrees. And by radio, they're directing the tugboats, which are helping steer this enormous ship. It's just it's just so amazing to me. And it also made me realize so many aspects of the supply chain that you cover in your book are 
highly automated. There are many robots. There are a lot of AI systems. There's a bunch of computers. Um, but then you have this rope ladder dangling down the side of a boat. And <laughs> nobody's figured out how to how to change that. And I was thinking, man, if we ever develop teleportation, that's probably going to be the first thing it will be used for. Yeah, the British Marines literally have a jetpack that they use. What? That they have that they have tested. Yeah, there's some great videos of it where this guy has like two jet nozzles. He has a backpack and two jet nozzles on either hand. And they can use that jetpack to launch themselves off of a boat and then like land on a ship, like if you're gonna board it or something. But I don't see that uh being incorporated in the harbor pilot trade anytime soon. Oh man, that'd be so cool though. And think of how many people would want to be harbor pilots. You get your own jetpack. <laughs> Yes. Also, why do they do this by boat and not by like helicopter? I mean, these these ships are so huge. You could land a helicopter on that. You could. I mean, I think that you would have your own challenges then. I mean, I would urge anybody who thinks it's easy to get from a helicopter onto a big ship, which is itself pitching, to uh, watch. There's a famous scene in The Hunt for Red October where, uh, you know, the main character, the CIA analyst, has to like go from a helicopter onto the submarine and it is extremely dramatic and they're like lowering him with a winch and the boat is moving and the helicopter is, you know, fighting the wind. And um, I'm not sure it would be any safer. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I, I like about this book is kind of the, the contrast, right. Between like that rope ladder and the many advances that are needed to come together for the modern supply chain. And yes, there's computers and AI and robots and many, so many conveyor belts. There are so many conveyor belts. <laughs> but I also love that there is chemistry. And I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of high modulus polyethylene, because this was amazing. Yeah, you're the, uh, the first, the only person to ask about this. This is uh, one of the unsung heroes of the nautical world. Somebody... So historically, you know, when a, when a tugboat would tie up to a big ship or a ship would tie up to shore, uh, it would put this, I mean, it's not hard to imagine. You, you have a ship that weighs thousands of tons and, uh, you know, an, an, another boat or ship that's connected to it. The amount of tension you can put on a rope connecting the sh ship to shore to another boat is so great. That, you know, as recently as the 1980s, the, the United States Navy would make sailors watch a video in which they showed why you had to be super careful ar around these ropes that were under high tension. Because if one snapped, it would move at the speed of a bullet and it could cut you in half. This was a lethal hazard for sailors all over the world. And then somebody was messing around with some chemistry and, and they found this thing called high modulus polyethylene. And the crazy thing about this super long molecule of plastic is that uh, all of the super long molecules form these big chains and it doesn't stretch. So it doesn't build up any potential energy when you make a rope out of it. And yet it's super strong. It's slippery it is uh, resistant to uh, being broken down by the sun or corrosion by uh, salt water. So it's kind of this like miracle rope that nobody knows about, but at a, at a, at, at a stroke, it eliminated the possibility of sailors dying from rope snapping and ropes used to snap all the time. 
Uh, and it's all because of the, the unique chemistry of this stuff that somebody had to figure out how to spin into rope. And then once they did, everybody's like, well, that's it. That's just what we're going to use forever. Thanks for the tool. <laughs> it's just amazing how many things kind of come together to form this chain. I just, I marvel at it over and over. Um, and of course there are robots and you met one of the largest robots in the world. Um, and I love this because the robots at the port that you were working at, which was the port of uh, LA are all about stacking containers in exactly the right way. So that the right container is easily available when a truck comes to pick it up, like a very absorbing game of candy crush played with shipping containers. Yes. And that's was, an app description. And, and I was wondering how, how this happens. Because, of course, when humans do it, there's a reason most of the time we kind of fail at Candy Crush. <laughs> right? It all piles up and then we lose. Um, yep. In this, the, you know, robots do it. And most of the time they don't lose. And I was wondering, how does that work? So this is a... Uh... I mean, there's tons of algorithms that our everyday lives rely on that are super complicated. And, you know, you might describe them as AI, but they're, but they predate, you know, the, the modern vogue for deep learning and all that. And they come from disciplines called things like queuing theory, where people just have spent decades trying to figure out, okay, you have a problem where you know that there are, you know, this many thousand or hundred containers stacked up like children's blocks in on, on the concrete of a, of a port terminal. And you know that trucks are going to arrive in a semi-predictable order. Hopefully you're scheduling them, but there's contingencies, you know, trucks don't show up or containers go missing or whatever. How do you make sure that these containers are stacked so that the right container is on top of the stack at the moment that the correct truck arrives. So a crane can go over and just pick up that container, lift it up, and then gingerly place it on the uh, trailer of that truck. And you just, and and by the way, you want to do this in as few moves as possible, like it, from the moment that it gets off the ship. So it's this unbelievably tremendous optimization problem but it's also the kind of optimization problem that computers are really great at, that humans are not so great at. I mean, it, it's it's a similar, you can brute force your solution to this problem the same way that Deep Blue did when it beat Gary Kasparov, because you have this pretty well-defined problem, uh, although there is a bit more randomness than in the game of chess, where everything is you know predictable except for your opponent. So that's how that is the that that software and you know just years and years and years of of stepwise small uh innovations and and improvements in that software is the reason that modern ports are so efficient. It's also the reason that so many companies want to automate these ports more and more because if you have robot cranes picking up those containers and sorting them, they can work 24/7. It's called grooming the stacks of containers. And they can be working around the clock, whether there's a ship or a truck at the port or not, just constantly sorting these containers so that they're hopefully in exactly the right order to be picked up or once they're dropped off to be put onto a ship. Yeah, I love the idea of like these robots grooming containers in the night. And I kind of want to see it. It sounds very weirdly peaceful. 
It is. I mean, they're they're silent too, nearly yeah. silent because they're electric generally. Um, and your book is all about kind of connecting dots. You know, it connects technological dots, it connects physical dots, and it connects historical dots. And one of them is particularly wild because we're going to Godwin this podcast because Hitler has something to do with the cross country highway system. <laughs> I was a little shocked by this. If you could talk about what Hitler has to do with I-95, because I was just like, what? No. Yeah. So, you know, America's roads have been terrible for most of the time that America has been a country. And, uh, you know, before Hitler came to power, there was this thing called the Autobahn. He saw it as a way to drum up support. You know, it was a big works project when he initially came to power. He's like, well, let's employ a bunch of unemployed German men who will hopefully become loyal to me to uh, make this thing better. And the first modern highway in the world, which means, you know, with on ramps and off ramps and all the things that we take for granted that make traveling on a highway so fast and so convenient, uh, all of those were pioneered not in the United States, even though we had already started building, you know, turnpikes and stuff here, but were pioneered in the so-called Reichs Autobahn. And when a, a, a youngish uh, or not super old uh, Dwight Eisenhower came to Europe when the allies were literally chasing the Germans back across Germany they had this terrible problem of getting supplies, trucks, jeeps, tanks across France where the roads were terrible. And the moment that they hit the Reichsautobahn, which had been built all the way up to the French border precisely to move things like uh, tanks very quickly, they were like, oh my God, this is incredible. Like we can just, we can chase the Germans right across their own country. And it made a huge impression on Eisenhower. And when he came you know, back to the U.S. when he was president, it was one of the things that motivated him to fund America's national highway system. I mean, it was a defense project, but it was also the idea that, like, you know, we're, we're going to be able to move a lot of people on this and it's going to be super convenient. And, oh, by the way, you know, the Germans already figured out the optimal design for this. So we're just going to copy that. And once our product goes by boat and then by highway um, in the U.S., it often ends up, well, sometimes at an Amazon warehouse, which is basically a factory. And when most of us think of factories producing or moving kind of gizmos, we think of Henry Ford and the assembly line where each person adds a new thing, like someone has a steering wheel and the next person adds the door and on and on. Um, but you actually focus in your book not on Henry Ford, but on someone named Frederick Winslow Taylor. And the idea of Taylorism. And I was wondering if you could talk about who this guy was and kind of how he made the factory what it is today. Taylor was the original management consultant. He invented something he called scientific management, which really just consisted of observing people doing repetitive tasks in factories, you know, timing every step and trying to optimize all the things that they did. I mean, he did it in, in what we now know, frankly, was uh, a pretty clumsy and ham-handed way that led to a lot of backlash wherever he was paid millions of dollars to try to implement his ideas. But others took that idea and ran with it. And, you know, it became the Toyota production system. 
it became uh, you know the Six Sigma system in some ways that GE was famous for employing, and it became systems that Amazon uses today. But in all cases, it's about uh, taking any repetitive task in an industrial context, breaking it down to its smallest parts, and you know observing the people doing it and just optimizing the heck out of it. When Taylor did this uh, at the it was called the Watertown Arsenal because at the time the U.S. government still made its own arms. Uh, the The workers were so disgusted with the system and 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 I guess so overworked by it that they all went on strike. And then there were hearings in Congress, and Congress declared that Taylorism could never be used in a government facility ever again. And yet, Taylorism today is arguably the water that we swim in. It's it's if you've ever worked in fast food, in a call center, in an Amazon warehouse, uh, or in many other places, you know, manufacturing, obviously, all of those places are fully tailorized. So we live in Taylor's world and arguably his ideas and the way that it made us all more productive has has expanded the economy, but also, you know, at the expense of worker agency and and uh in a way that probably made a lot of those jobs a lot less sustainable and led to a lot of the turnover you see in those industries um i have to say you know taylorism is the reason why you know bosses would follow you around with stopwatches um, kind of a thing and i have to say the idea of a guy with his watch trying to shave milliseconds off everything you do honestly sounds like a demon in the good place right and yet uh, that is precisely what uh, so many systems and uh, you know algorithms and software do if you work at a McDonald's, if you work in an Amazon warehouse, if you work in a call center. It's just that instead of a human or a demon following you around observing everything that you're doing, uh, you know, it's just every uh, smart connected object that you're touching knows how long it took you to perform any particular task. So it's like the human, but maybe even worse in some ways. But I also find it very fascinating. Um, It was kind of an aside, actually, in your book. Um, But I was struck by the connection that you made between Taylorism and how many of us now try to enhance our own productivity and hack our lives, right? We're using Pomodoro techniques or we're tracking our sleep or things like that. And I was kind of wondering how, how did Taylor's ideas of making kind of every movement we do more efficient contribute to a changing idea of what is valuable about the way you use your time. Because I feel like he promoted kind of a shift in how we think about productivity. That's a really good question. And I think that the challenge here is sorting out how much Taylorism led to that versus how much other things led to that. And Taylorism was just kind of along for the ride. People started to value their time and their productivity more and measure it a little bit more or just be more aware of it. And then, you know, here is, you know, Taylorism and life hacking and all the rest, uh, you know, ready to sort of take its place and and help us optimize our lives in these ways. So, you know, it's a little bit hard to say but certainly there was a, a kind of mutualism between the two where, you know, as industrial capitalism just 
took over the world and really our conception of time changed and we began to measure it in smaller and smaller increments you know taylorism was kind of there waiting for us you know born in the factory but now it's available to anyone and there was a vogue a lot of his followers for example um the gilbreth so made famous in the disney movie cheaper by the dozen that book before it was a disney movie was a bestseller because they used the tenets of taylorism to optimize their households so that they could raise these 12 kids uh and and people loved it people were like oh of course you know there should be f- uh records of foreign language instruction playing while my kids are brushing their teeth because then we you know we can optimize that and of course it's totally fine and normal and not weird at all that the gilbreth dad uh you know who was paid by companies like you know ford and others to optimize their factories is like timing things that his children do with a stopwatch in order to ma- optimize their time in the bathroom or whatever at the time, it was viewed as like, oh, this is going to be great. I mean, it was the same way that um, people viewed things like, uh, you know, labor-saving devices, like the dishwasher or whatever. Like, wh- the idea was, if we become more efficient, we will have more leisure time. But of course, we all know that didn't work out that way. Yeah, the human mind will always come up with lots of ways to ruin the best idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I also wanted to talk about that with the rise of Amazon, it's no longer Taylorism, really. I mean, there is Taylorism, but there is Bezosism, which you argue might be the biggest thing that Bezos has ever done, um, which might seem odd to a lot of people. And I was wondering if you could talk about what is Bezosism and how is it different from Taylorism? Because it seems a bit related, but different. It's very much related. It's very much, you know, the the sort of child of the same schools of thought. You can trace its heritage all the way back to Taylorism. But Bezosism is just Taylorism with the addition of two things. One is better digital surveillance than ever. So, uh, you know, ca- one example, cameras with computer vision that watch every single thing that a person takes off or puts on, you know, one of these robotic moving shelves in an Amazon warehouse so that it knows exactly, you know, uh, if they grab the right thing and the pace at which they're uh, operating. It's that type of very sophisticated surveillance of work and work processes, plus uh, algorithms being in charge of people rather than humans. So in an Amazon facility, if you take too long to do your job, or you take too long of a break, the you know your little scanning gun or some other device is going to ding you and say, "Hey, you took too much time off task," and you know here's a little warning or here's a write up. If you get too many of these write ups, then a human manager is going to work with you to try to improve. And if you can't improve, then you know ultimately they'll fire you. So that's management by algorithm. And again, you see that uh, there's this a uh, amazing book by Emily uh, Gindelsberger, which was an inspiration to me. Uh, I think it's called On the Clock. And she traces how this kind of really souped up Taylorism, which I call Bezosism, is now common to fast food work and call centers and Amazon warehouses. And she verifies it by going and working in all of these places. So that doesn't have a name yet. I called it Bezosism because no one has brought it to the same level of sophistication and perfection as Amazon has. And it's really the secret of their 
very, very high productivity at all their fulfillment centers, which allows them to operate like factories. But the product of each of these fulfillment centers is your individual order rather than, you know, a finished good. And it's really fascinating to me because, you know, as you mentioned with Bezosism, you get this hyper surveillance right? Like the digital tracking of literally everything you do. So there's this extreme kind of hands-on extreme micromanagement. But at the same time, Amazon also has deeply embraced something called the fissured workplace, which is kind of like a gigantic gig economy for truck services. And I, I was wondering kind of why do you end up with this divide, this divide between extreme micromanagement within an Amazon fulfillment warehouse and kind of this extreme hands-off effect of the wish of the fissured workplace, because it probably su- might surprise a lot of people to know that people driving trucks with Amazon labels on them are not actually Amazon employees. Those are people contracted out in this kind of extreme hands-off approach. So why does that divide exist? Amazon did not invent that. Amazon is, you know, a great uh, copier of others, whatever they think is a good idea. Uh, That's also true of FedEx drivers, believe it or not. You know, they're driving FedEx trucks, but they don't technically work for FedEx, nor do the Amazon drivers. They work for a small local delivery company. It's like a franchise that works with Amazon. That insulates these companies from legal liability if the driver gets into an accident or if the you know, driver gets abused or harassed by their boss. It insulates Amazon from having to deal with those uh, harassment claims or any other type of workers' compensation. And it's this type of work is also common in, you know, famously, infamously, I should say, it, you know, like the people who, who clean offices. You know, there, it used to be that you could start out as a janitor and work your way up to the executive of a company. That's just not possible anymore because that person is working for a cleaning company that's contracted by whoever they are, some big tech company, let's say. So the fissured workplace, this whole idea of let's use subcontractors to insulate ourselves from legal liability, but also frankly to, you know, keep a cap on wages and benefits that is common across our economy. And it really puts a cap on workers ability to demand better working conditions or more money or benefits. And I think Amazon uses it because, you know, they're all about efficiency and controlling costs. And I think that when they needed to build out their own last mile fulfillment network, which is all those trucks that are delivering to you, which they had to do because UPS and FedEx simply couldn't accommodate the amount of demand that Amazon had. You know, they had two big models, right? There's UPS, where for a century, they've all been unionized. They all belong to the Teamsters Union. Certainly, Amazon's not going to go that direction. They're famously anti-union. And then there's FedEx, which is a more modern company. So, you know, they have escaped for now any efforts by uh, their drivers to unionize. So they went in that direction. It also helped them scale up a lot faster because rather than having to hire all those drivers and vet them themselves, they could just, they, they had this offer where they're like, hey, you know, become a small business owner, set up your own delivery route. You know, we'll provide you with trucks and uh, you go hire your drivers and deal with all the personnel challenges. And uh, as long as you can deliver this many packages per day on this route, you know, you're, you're good. You can work with us, but you take on all the liability that comes with that. Yeah. It's really interesting because, you know, there's so many 
kind of wowzers technological gizmos in this book, right? There's like the world's largest robot, and there's amazing computer systems. But it also seems that throughout this journey with long-haul truckers, longshoremen, people working in Amazon warehouses, the net result is a lot of people doing really hard jobs, often physically backbreaking jobs, for not a lot of pay, basically for our convenience, for a desire to have a thing fast. And I was wondering how how much of that is in our control. Can I make somebody's life better if I stop ordering two-day shipping? Or is it all (laughs) beyond us right now? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is where it gets challenging because I don't think that the answers kind of break along just typical, you know, easy ideological lines. When I talk to Amazon workers, they don't want you to boycott Amazon. That's not what they're asking for. They often just want better working conditions. I mean, they're already... I mean, to your point about wages, the truth is that the reason Amazon can maintain this furious pace of work and hire so many people is in many places, they're raising the wage, the local wage floor. They're, you know, if they set up a distribution center in rural Alabama, they're forcing all the other employers to pay more because they're able and willing to pay more. Um, So they're good on, on wages and benefits, but the labor is often, as you alluded to, it's physically unsustainable, right? Like Amazon really believes in this whole idea that, uh, you know, we're a team, not a family. And, you know, we hire the best performers. And if you can't cut it, then, um, you know, no hard feelings, but here's the door. So it's great if you're young. Well, it's not great, but it's it's doable if you're very very physically fit a lot of this warehouse work not so doable if you're older which is why you see these reports of a lot of injuries uh you know frankly it's because they're they're they need so many people that they'll hire anybody and then the way that people get winnowed out is maybe they just can't cut it or they don't want to deal with the sort of very repetitive mind-numbing labor that can happen in these warehouses Yeah. And, you know, at the beginning of the book, you note that you want to convince people that they live inside a factory. And throughout this book, we go through a lot of factories. (laughs) Um, What do you mean when you say that we all live in this factory? Well, in the old days, factories were, you know, like Henry Ford's uh, River Rouge plant, like Raw materials went in one end, steel, rubber, etc. And and model model T's came out the other. Nothing in our modern economy, almost nothing, works that way anymore. I mean, supply chains are factories because so many different components have to be made all over the world and then brought together for final assembly. And even before those components are made, all the different raw materials can come from dozens or hundreds of different places. So, you know, the factory to create a smartphone, for example, is literally spread all over the world as all of those components are are shipped about to finally coalesce uh, into a smartphone, like raindrops out of a cloud. And that long supply chain just extends to our front door. And so 
the supply chain that I chronicle in the book, it's just another conveyor or conveyor belt uh, in layperson's term that is moving those goods to our household where we end up consuming them. So, so while we are the end point, because of the way that our consumer behavior is changed, especially by e-commerce and, you know, demand can be generated, you know, like we've all gotten ads for things that we were looking at and then we decide, okay, yeah, I'll go ahead and buy that. You know, the moment that we allow ourselves to be influenced by these algorithms, we're just placing ourselves in at the inside this giant factory where we're the end point we're, we're just like lucille ball like at the end of that conveyor stuffing the chocolates in our mouths hey you don't know my life <laughs> <laughs> um I, I was actually wondering you know did as we mentioned you know if you stop doing two-day shipping that's not actually what amazon workers want um did researching this book make you change anything about your own behavior, about what you order, about where you order it from? Did it make you kind of change your place in the factory? It, it made me do two things. I mean, it made me think a lot harder about, do I need this thing? Because now I know how long the supply chain is to get it to me. It made me think more about where things come from and how my access to them could be imperiled at any moment. Uh, so for example, uh, when the great toilet paper shortage happened at the beginning of the pandemic, I, you know, along with my partner, we kind of decided this together. I was like, this is nonsense. Like, can we just eliminate this from our lives? And we went and bought one of those like $99 tushy bidets that you can get online. And once we like, tri- every, you know, everybody in the family was on board, it actually just retrained us. And we're like, oh, 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 like Americans are idiots. Like Southeast Asians have been doing this for forever and everyone uh, should just get on board. Um, and also it made me do things like uh, I think about uh, when and how things are delivered to me. So, you know, if you're going to continue to use Amazon, you don't have to get it tomorrow. You really don't need it tomorrow. Trust me, unless it's like just a charging cable or something. So Amazon offers, for example, that you get all your goods delivered on the same day. Everyone should do that. It's an instantaneous way to ease the burden on the humans in that Amazon supply chain and on the environment and everything else. Nobody needs goods more often than once a week. And we can all wait a few extra days to get it. Um, You know, did it make me stop using Amazon? No. Did it make me try to seek out other online retailers when that's available to me? Uh, You know, yes. And, uh, you know, but it also made me aware of it, it busted some myths for me. So, for example, you know, is local always better? Or is it, should I always drive to the store for certain everyday items instead of getting ordering them online, you know, because it has a lower environmental impact. No, getting in a 3000 pound car and driving to the store for five pounds worth of groceries is not a good use of the earth's resources. (laughs) It turns out that there, that, that, that those are the kind of things where we should apply all of this knowledge and sophistication we have about supply chains to make that kind of thing more environmentally sustainable. And I was wondering, you know, I am starting to realize that every single book has a pile of stuff that just never happened. Um, Things that didn't fit, things that got left out, things that got cut. 
And I was wondering, what is a story from this book that you really wanted to include that didn't happen? Because of the pandemic, I was supposed to make one more reporting trip to the Port of LA to cover what I think is one of the most interesting, but also complicated parts of our domestic supply chain. And and frankly, the least well-known. And it is what's called drayage, which means the trucks that pick up shipping containers at the port and then take them uh, usually to a nearby warehouse. It could be right there in LA. Uh, often there is somewhere in the Inland Empire or, you know, or it could be halfway across the country where those containers are unloaded before those goods are then you know, put into a fulfillment center to go to your door or you know, taken on long haul trucks elsewhere. Drayage is so important because, for example, it, it, it was a major bottleneck. It is a major bottleneck um, on our West Coast ports because all of those drivers, it's all piecework. So they're just they just get paid by the load. There's terrible conflict between drayage drivers and the unionized and very powerful uh, port workers, the International Longshoremen Workers Union, where the drayage drivers feel like they get mistreated by the port workers. You know, the port workers feel like the drayage drivers are a threat because they're not unionized. Uh, the drayage drivers would like there to be more automation on ports because automated terminals tend to have faster turnaround time. So they're not sitting in there, they're not idling in their semi truck waiting as long to pick up a load. And remember, they're getting paid by the load. So it's this huge complicated story about the way that automation sets up conflicts between different types of workers, how automation can benefit some types of workers just as it hurts others. Um, and also how like so much else, so many other workers in trucking, there's this whole class of drivers who kind of really get exploited and, uh, aren't very valued. And, you know, there's a question about how sustainable that is. Certainly the way that that system is set up has not allowed us to flex that part of the supply chain in response to all this extra demand. And is one reason that, you know, there's still all these backlogs at those ports and there will be in the future. And your book follows an item from start to finish, basically. Um, From the first ship, it hops on to someone's front door. And at the front door, it just kind of ends. Like the book just ends. <laughs> what do you want people to take away from this journey? I mean, I want them to take away that every single time they get a delivery at their home, there's nothing mundane about that. It is an actual miracle. You know, computers had to solve problems that were previously thought completely unsolvable by any computer between now and the heat death of the universe in order to optimize the route of the truck that got you that good. Dozens or hundreds of people touched that object, no matter how small or mundane. It came on a 14,000 mile journey from halfway around the world. You know, it was made by a human being. It was carried by many human beings, some of which are well compensated and have decent jobs and some of which are exploited in ways that few of us know about. So, That is, I don't want to say it's a holy thing, but it is a straight up miracle that that thing arrived at your front door. We built a globe spanning physical internet that transmits atoms instead of bits. And to us, it's just like, eh, click by now, it'll be here tomorrow. That's unreal. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Christopher Mims, his book, and how that package arrived at your doorstep, we've got the details at scienceforthepeople.ca. 
While you're there, we'd love to have you back. Subscribe to the show, follow us on social media, leave us a kind note. We love to hear from our listeners. We've also got a link to our Patreon page, and if you're able, our page helps us keep our show independent. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>